My little brother's friends have been camped out at our place for two days straight. Three. It's because of the Xfinity 10G network. Internet that can handle a house full of screens at once, with like basically no interruptions. And it's only getting faster. When I was their age, internet like this was a pipe dream. You sound like my grandpa. Please go home. Introducing the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like, breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you loved the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. Welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, OuterLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. If this is the first time that you are hearing our show, I should bring to your attention that last week we did a 10-hour show on death, and we are done. We are done covering death. We've covered it every which way, shape, or form. We're pivoting in a totally different direction. We're going to focus on life and the cornerstone of creative life and energy, I feel, is Mr. Billy Joel, a legend. If you're from Long Island, this gentleman is seen as a greater icon than his son itself. Billy's music has been a part of many of our lives. He's unbelievable. 33 hit songs. You can't pass a Long Island wedding without a bunch of people collectively trying to sing Piano Man together very poorly. It's the only time, I think, at any party where everyone tries to do karaoke or feels the need to do karaoke. It's during Piano Man. Well, we weren't able to secure an interview with Mr. Joel yet. We were able to interview Mr. Fred Schroers, who wrote the definitive autobiography about Billy Joel. And Fred was incredibly nice, and he gives a lot of great information. And this particular show is a departure from our typical metaphysical, spiritual, deep introspective type programs. I wanted to make this show light and fun, considering what we just went through last week. So... The Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show proudly presents a discussion about the extraordinary life of Mr. Billy Joel. Joining us now is Mr. Fred Schroers, author. You've authored the great book, The Definitive Biography About Billy Joel, probably one of the best biographies I've ever read on anyone. He's also written for Premiere. He's written for Rolling Stone. He's written for a lot of national publications for a very long time. Thank you so much for being with us today, Fred. Oh, it's my pleasure, and thank you for the kind words. Got it. This book you wrote on Billy Joel, I think it was absolutely fantastic. And you worked with him. You spent a lot of time with him. From all the people you could have written a book about, why did you choose Billy Joel? What made him stand out in your mind as somebody of all the musicians you covered as being unique? I'll tell you, he... Um I grew up with him, uh, as many of us can say. Uh, I was born on Long Island, moved to New Jersey, but you know, so nominally I would be a Springsteen guy, right? And I'm certainly a fan. <laughs> yeah. But um, and of course, a, a great privilege of hanging out a, more than a bit with him 
was to see the two of them together on a couple occasions. So uh, whatever people may make of that as a rivalry, they're actually quite friendly with each other and very respectful and admiring of each other. So, um, but Billy, to really answer your question, in a way the project chose me because he had gone to an agent and said, uh, you know, he and his folks who run his career, though really he runs his own career, decided it was an appropriate time for an autobiography. And I guess I was, they found me as a ghostwriter, so to speak. Now, that would change ultimately, as we know, and it would become a biography. But at that stage, I was just there really to facilitate Billy getting himself on paper. Uh, and ultimately, there was an audio book, which I was more than pleased to jump in and say, uh, when do we start, you know? Uh, and what we did was go off to Japan and Australia before I really, all I had was sort of a handshake that this is probably happening. So I I grew up as a fan, and it was a very easy call once the opportunity came. I said, I'm there. I'm happy to be with you, you know? Uh, that's great to hear. And I know in the beginning of the book you cite the fact that Mr. Joel's relatives were survivors of the Holocaust, and I'm wondering how did that influence, do you feel, influence Billy Joel, knowing that these were his roots and knowing that he had this opportunity to live in a world, live in America that was did not have this kind of dark oppression, did not have to experience the horrors that his relatives once did? How did that impact his life and his motivation? I do think he, he's grateful for that. You know, he, uh, were it not for a kind of fortunate happenstance that his you know, the gentleman who fled and uh, Billy's father, uh, Billy's grandfather, um, was just fortunate. He had just enough money that when they got to Havana, Cuba, given that America was then admitting a very slow trickle of refugees, they were fortunate to disembark in Cuba. And a, a curio there is that his dad, who was raised as Helmut and renamed himself Howard in America, Helmut went to school, the same school that Fidel Castro went to. But I think Billy was grateful uh, that the family survived. Uh, you know, a funny thing, though, Ryan, is now he's growing up in in Long Island. And again, I was born out there, and uh, I was familiar with it, even though my family left when I was three. In subsequent years, I came to know that little patch of Long Island known as Levittown, which East Coasters, mm -hmm. like yourself, know is yep. a very distinctive kind of housing development, post-war housing development. Uh, so you would think, oh, America, land of opportunity, and post-war, and we're all together. But, of course, there was rice anti-Semitism out there, which he experienced as a child. He actually had a little girl in the street say, oh, you're Jewish? When do your horns show? They literally said that to him. Jeez. So uh, he, you know, he says these things with uh, more than a grain of humor, but he also, he, he realized that that kind of bias can exist, you know, all throughout the world. And we, oh, God help us, it's probably never going away. So that lends a real kind of reverberation to what his family survived, uh, certainly so. Are there any parts of his music or any songs that you feel that he's written that have actually been ways of standing up to the bullying and standing up to the torment that he experienced as a kid? Are there any messages that he sang in any of his songs 
that are pushing back and trying to make light of all the darkness of that earlier childhood and all that racism that had been experienced as a child? That's a really good question, and not just in the sense of a good question that's difficult to answer. Though it's a bit, my my explanation will be a little convoluted, but uh, it's also a very prescient question. Um, you know, some it's just almost a superficial rebellion. A song like "You May Be Right," "I May Be Crazy," you know, uh, he he was a rebellious lad. He did hang out with some tough little guys on Long Island. So I would say by the time, do a song specifically address that kind of anti-Semitism? Not really so much. I mean, if he was a little bit picked on in that regard, then a little is already too much. Um, he was also very aware there are almost no African-Americans in his neighborhood. So, you know, there's a very nefarious little web of, of real estate people, really, who keep those neighborhoods lily white and uh, ethnically cleansed, so to speak. So has he addressed it over time? Only at the margins, you know, but he, he would address suburbia. So, um, you know, uh, moving out, that song itself, if that's moving up, then I'm moving out. You know, he portrays these kind of middle-class lives, striving middle-class lives, uh, not in a dismissive way, but... Um, I think that whole complex of feelings about growing up, he grew up uh, on a block. Uh, you know, I visited the block with him. I've been there a couple times on my own, took pictures with his archivist. It's one of those kind of uh, houses in that checkerboard of small lots, and most people had at least a carport. They didn't have the carport. They kind of pulled onto the lawn. Uh, some people made little expansions off the back of the house. They had one of the humbler houses on a block. His mom, after his dad left at seven, was a single mom. So I think he had a real sense of himself as, you know, not the kid who was uh, looked up to because his family had high status on that block. They were a little bit, you know, regarded as the, the lesser. And uh, I think... That's why some rebellion you hear again in moving out, and, and, and of course, his Twyla Tharp interpreted it uh, for her, her musical, which had such a success. That's very much a, a theme, you know. How do you get out of this rather enveloping, smothering suburbia, and you know, find yourself as an artist and a creative person and a, an independent individual? I think he's fought with that his whole life. It's it's reflected only marginally in the songs because again the songs are very much an emotional journey uh, involving romance and aspiration and things like that. He he can be very sociological in a song like Allentown. Um, mm. He felt a real empathy for the people out there who, at a certain stage, you know, when the Iron Belt, the Rust Belt, started to decay and you know that kind of manufacture moved overseas or simply dwindled uh thus living here in allentown uh, so when he finally hollers out at one verse of the song uh they threw an american flag in our face it's you don't hear every day you know outside of the woody guthries of the world that kind of really stern angry critique of the american system uh he's is he aware he's done very well it I mean, it's it's almost comical to him. He can wander out on the lawn of his 15-acre estate 
from a house that's about 15,000 square feet, and he looks 100 yards down at the bay, and that's where he used to work on a clam boat in the winter, uh, <laughs> which was hard, cold, wet, grueling work. So uh, he's very well aware of his roots, and you know, we, there's a whole topic of his empathy for the Long Island fisherman culture. You know, he's been a great supporter of those people, and when a, a, I think the gent was an immigrant from El Salvador, perhaps died in a, an accident on one of those fishing boats. Billy was the one who quietly put up the money for his funeral. So that's a long-winded way of saying he's got great awareness. He's got a little reservoir of anger uh, about, you know, how the economy wasn't too kind to the underprivileged. And he was one of those people once upon a time. One of the reasons why, one of the many reasons why I particularly loved your book, Fred, is because in between every chapter, when there is a song that Mr. Joel has written that is applicable to what he's going through, you actually incorporate pieces and lyrics of the words. So the book has a really strong flow to it. As a matter of fact, I would say like the, the book is a is almost like a this comprehensive Billy Joel song. It just has a really you know great flow to it. And Billy Joel apparently did not grow up with television. He wasn't one of these children that watch TV all the time. He read books on a regular basis. I'm curious to know how reading books was able to define his comprehension and view of the world as opposed to watching television. How do you think that his songs and the passion for what he writes about would have been impacted had he grown up with television and not all the books that he'd been reading? Yeah, well, that's, again, a very pertinent question. Um, because he is a reader. To this day, it's funny. You know, his birthday's coming up on May 9th, and I, I just sent an email to his assistant that, is Billy going to be in Florida or is Billy going to be in Long Island? Because I'd love him to get this book I'm sending him. By the way, just to get a plug-in for a very nice book called The Jazz Palace by an author named Mary Morris I had the pleasure of meeting. It's about a young kind of piano prodigy in Chicago, circa, of, uh, circa 1927. Uh, that's when the story really comes to fruition. So Billy's a reader, and that meant that a narration in a song uh, let's face it, some of those songs are really kind of uh, finely developed narratives. I think he got a sense of how to develop a story, how to bring a protagonist forward in a song or a story and, and have us follow that person's you know, hopes and dreams, not to sound too corny about it. So um, the reading was key. There's a book. Uh, he's a great fan of the Scottish poet Robert Burns. I think he loved how Burns took a literary sensibility and brought out a kind of Burns's poetry. Of course, is almost uh, more musical than it's than it's strictly speaking uh, poetry on the page. And uh, so he went to school on things like that, and of course the American Songbook. Uh, but yeah, his sense of things literary and his early appetite for history and biographies and. Uh, just looking at it from my own singular perspective, when it came time to switch the book from autobiography to biography, uh, and I can pick up your thought about the lyrics in here too, when that time came, I knew he had a perfect awareness of what I would be doing, that he knew, you know, uh, I signed his one would as a ghostwriter non-disclosure agreement. So that material really always belonged to him. So it took an active decision on Billy's part to say, look, 
I didn't want to do the autobiography ultimately. Thank you for your work on it. And I was paid by Billy, you know, a fee by Billy's folks to do that book. He said, go with God, do the biography. I'll help you all you want, but I'll stay out of your way, which again is evidence of a sense. What does a biographer need? A biographer needs the room to occasionally be critical, to say the things perhaps the artist couldn't say. And yet a, a great boon was to have his cooperation. Uh, one of my favorite little snippets of review I got was that the book, because the way it was done, shares the virtues of biography and autobiography. And thus, it's chock full of Billy quotes, thank goodness, because he's such a good talker. And to <laughs> your point, it's chock full of lyrics, because again, fair use, writers know this, and people who end up quoting folks in print, fair use is about four lines per song. So uh, ultimately, you can convey something to the song. I was given by Billy and his publishing company a very specific kind of letter that was developed, an agreement that was developed, freedom to quote as much as I felt the, the topic needed. So again, generosity on his part, generosity on the part of people around him, and thus those lyrics, which, again, thank you for that, that compliment, they can nicely set off what's going on in Billy's life. And that was my mission from the start. This guy has, he's had 33 hits. We know the story of his life is interpreted in the song. Let me try and get in there and tell you all some of the stuff that that's beneath the surface, sometimes way beneath the surface. So that was a great privilege. And again, that's a long-winded way of saying Billy's awareness of what literature is was immensely helpful to me in trying to make a piece that pretends to be, purports to be literature. And also, I noticed that throughout your book, you seems to present Billy as a person who's driven by instinct, by gut feelings, by sensing and feeling things out. And there's one particular point you talk about in the book where I believe it was his uh, ex-brother-in-law, correct me if I'm wrong, that wound up doing something shady behind his back, and it cost Billy Joel a lot of money, and he had to work extra hard on that. I'm curious to know, are there other instances where Billy Joel has had a shaken in his confidence, both intellectually and instinctively, because of his bigger heart, because he's got a big heart, because he's willing to go with his heart and not go with maybe what his gut feeling or his logic is telling him? Well, yes, he did. It's interesting. For somebody as smart as Billy is, he he's very trusting. And the gent you referred to, uh, Frank Weber, um, was somebody who... Of course, Billy was married to Elizabeth Weber. She was from the neighboring town to his his hometown of Hicksville, Syosset. And again, the Long Islanders, the New Yorkers, know that Syosset is one of the five towns, along with Hewlett and a couple others. Those are very well-to-do people. You don't have to go too far south. That's sort of, you know, verging on the North Shore. You don't have to go too far south uh, to be in a lower socioeconomic, you know, income bracket. And so Frank was from a privileged but slightly, what can you say about his family? I don't want to mischaracterize them. But there, it was an adventure to be mixed. He compared them to the Borgias, of course, the famous Renaissance <laughs> thieves and, and uh, killers. So, um, yeah, he Frank Weber took over Billy's business. Now, mind you, uh, to address did he have downtimes, 
prior to his success starting, which Elizabeth had a heavy hand in, she was very much helping guide it as his manager. Prior to that success, his first two albums for Columbia really kind of tanked. And the, the famous Walter Yetnikoff, uh, one of the really interesting record executives in, in the history of that business. Uh, and uh, if if anyone's watching vinyl uh, and they look at Richie Finestra. Great show. Yeah, isn't it a fascinating show? Uh, having sat, you know, having met Yetnikoff back in the day and more recently for a long interview about Billy, he's a fascinating, charismatic man. And... Um, He's a lot like that executive. So he'd be the first to tell you, and he has a book called Howling at the Moon, that he had some rather destructive habits. Uh, but he was very loyal to Billy. So there came a stage where Elizabeth said, hey, we need some help. We need to get out. If Billy can tour, if Billy can be in front of an audience, he will have their loyalty. And Yetnikoff was smart enough to say, you know what, you're right. And the next day, what was then a nice sum of money, 80000 bucks popped up in the budget for a Billy tour. And also, fortunately, uh, after those two albums that didn't do so well, his craft had come along and his the surroundings, the musicians, had grown that much more able. And so he went from kind of in the rock and roll gutter of not succeeding to suddenly starting that string of incredible hits. During that downtime, did he ever give up? No, because he was still getting to be a rock and roll guy and travel, be on the road with his friends. It's it's not like today where you get on the little private jet and bounce over to L.A. It was, you know, a couple of station wagons. There's a hilarious picture in the book, hilarious for the insiders and perhaps with this explanation, of, of Irving, his manager, a really nice man who I interviewed. Uh, uh, in his platform shoes and bell bottoms, squatting by the car, changing the tire. The band's not going to change the tire, <laughs> you know. And they're there, like, making snowballs on the side of the road. So they traveled on the cheap, and they built an audience. So uh, I'd say a crisis of confidence came. He got he just played Memphis, and there's a club, I think it was called the Lafayette there. Billy was opening for various people on the road, big acts, sometimes like the Beach Boys, he didn't enjoy, enjoy opening. He thought, let me play a smaller venue. I can get over to a crowd in a smaller venue, but let me be the headliner. Let me do my thing. Let me not just play 40 minutes and out. So that was a real insight. And in Memphis, oh, back in the day, maybe 74, came a turning point where they played their own headlining gig in a small club just announced the night before. But that was, again, a turn in the road. I don't feel like being the second fiddle. I'm going to play as Billy Joel. I, I don't care if I only get you know the gate. I get what, what the club owner takes and what he doesn't skim. But let me just represent myself and my band as best I can. Now, an interesting insight about Billy and his character and his friendships. Back then, there was a guy named Steve Cohen. Steve still does Billy's Lights. And much more. Steve, before the show, and this is portrayed in the book and even in the afterword of, of the paperback version of the book, Steve will say, okay, here's the set list. There's only X amount of room to tweak. There's maybe four or five songs that are up for grabs that might be moved or deleted, uh, something subbed in its place. And they that's an artistic friendship that developed over time, and it's a great friendship, you know? So... For all of Billy's reverses and struggles on the road, 
there was always a band of brothers. Ryan Ruggles, his sound guy, is every bit the equal of Steve in terms of a trusted confidant. And Brian has a lot to say about the stage presentation, too. So these are people who have literally been with Billy beyond the 40-year mark. Uh, so, again, I'm speechifying, but uh, it, it wasn't all fun and games, but sometimes it was, and enough to keep them <laughs> content. Yeah. Excellent. Now, you made something, you said something earlier, just to remind everyone again, Billy Joel had 33 hits and probably counting. You can imagine the gentleman's going to reach more in the course of his life. You think about what drives his creativity. What is the inspiration? And I'm curious to know, over the course of those 33 hits, has his motivating factor been emotion? Has it been anger? Has it been depression? has been happiness. What do you feel have been the key components that tap allow him to tap into his creativity the best? Well, I think romance is certainly a big one. Let's face it. Uh, broken romance, budding romance. So there you have, you know, he meets Christy Brinkley. He writes a whole album, basically, you know, uh, an innocent man. And, you know, uh, this is something, it's funny, I haven't had the opportunity to discuss before, but um, why an innocent man? Yes, his intentions were honest, but a, a special resonance to that is Christie's boyfriend and really fiancé, I think, had died shortly before uh, she went down to St. Bart's. It was partly a, a trip of... of uh, no, the deaths came. She was down in St. Bart. She met Billy. It became a friendship. Then, tragically, uh, Olivier Chandon, you know, the champagne heir, died in his race car down in Florida. And so Billy really unselfishly, though who wouldn't want to be around Christy and see what happens, took on the role of confidant and friend and shoulder to cry on a little bit. And that's the innocence of the innocent man as well. But there's an innocence to just pure, you know, forehead-smacking love. He'd been through a tough marriage and divorce, and he wasn't confident. You know, he knew a few models. In fact, L. McPherson, legendarily. So it's not like Billy was sitting around, poor me, I can't get a date. He's already becoming a rock star. But So there's inspiration in romance. There's inspiration in someone like Frank Weber stealing your money. And um, he's written songs uh, like The Great Wall of China. I guess it's on the Stormfront album, a very topically named album. You know, uh, we could have, basically, we could have had it all, to paraphrase Adele. They could have, Frank could have had a great career, a hugely lucrative career, if he just <laughs> shepherded Billy in an honest way. But instead, you know, uh, again, I don't want to get in any legal trouble, but the FBI investigated him for malfeasance with Billy's funds. And Billy sued him uh, successfully, basically, for $30 million in actual damages and 60 more in punitive damages. In other words, the court says, not only that, but you hurt his whole career and you damaged him emotionally. So uh, that provided fodder. I guess the sort of summarizing thought is that, that it's either, uh, you know, um, sadness or euphoria, to, to quote another song. Uh, and Billy lives those extremes. He's an extremely emotionally accessible guy. Uh, you know, or the world, a way to put that might be that 
uh, it's not that immediately emotionally accessible. He's not a complainer. He's not a whiner. He's a bit private as regards those things. But he, he taps into his emotions, and he's vulnerable to emotions. So that fueled the songwriting. Even coming back to New York in that era, uh, Elizabeth was still on board. New York State of Mind, that sort of relatable nostalgia and love of your home after you've been away out in crazy L.A., you know, uh, again, his roots, he, he found inspiration a lot. I guess the, the sort of follow-on thought is, why did he stop writing when he did after writing famous last words on his last album, you know, 18 or more years ago? I think he felt he just couldn't perform, couldn't write the songs at the level he wanted to achieve. He thought he'd really said pretty much what he had to say. He'd, you know, he'd opened a vein onto the page for enough romances and what have you. And he thought it was time to quit. I'm going to stand or fall on these songs. And, you know, as we noticed, <laughs> uh, since he just played his 36th date in a row at Madison Square Garden, that that plan seems to have worked out. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. And there's something that uh, that was very difficult to read in the book especially if you really love it and, and appreciate Billy Joel and his work, and that that's the fact that he had attempted suicide. I don't believe he was depressed. I don't know if I think he had done it maybe a couple times, but from your perspective, when he was attempting suicide, when he did attempt suicide, was it out of self-hatred? Was it out of a means to try to escape a situation that he thought was impossible? And in surviving the suicide attempt, do you feel that it was something in his mind that he had in some way, shape, or form stood and faced death in the face and walked away from it? And how had that suicide, surviving suicide, impacted his life going forward and anything he had done creatively? creatively? Understood. Yes, he did survive really two attempts. One, of course, with his sense of humor, he can joke about this. So, uh, I think there's some confusion among people. Uh, it's funny. I was just in the shed looking for something here in my little home in Venice, California, and I saw some <laughs> old English scratch polish. And so, you know, you thank heaven for small favors. Everyone always said, well, Billy drank the lemon pledge because that might be tastier. Actually, he drank old English scratch polish, which is, oh. you know, I don't think that's really especially good for you. And uh, so he had his stomach pumped. But there was a subsequent, and that that was really kind of generalized despair. Uh, I can't, I'm like 20. I'm not going to make it. My songs aren't going to be heard. I'm, I don't really have a romance that's fulfilling in my life. Uh, damn, I, I don't feel like being at home, staying with my mom. Just despair, you know, up around the gunnels. So, uh and that was, again, he makes jokes about it. He said, basically, I sat there farting on the leather chair until they pumped my stomach and uh, polishing that up. But there was a subsequent one, which was a pill overdose, which was, it's hard to say, was it 85% intentional, but it was an honest-to-goodness overdose, and again, rushed to the hospital. And um, then he basically allowed himself to be checked in or checked himself in into a mental health facility in Meadowbrook, Long Island. And, of course, after a couple of days, he felt like he had righted the ship, and he said, okay, yeah, I've been here. I see that these 
these people are really crazy, but uh, I'm fine, so I'll go home now. And they said, that's very good, Mr. Joel. You, you can't leave. You've checked in. Here, here's your pills for the day. We want to see you take them. You know. So he says he looks like a dissolute French king with his you know, shaggy hair and his depressed face. So, yeah, he survived all that. Thank God. If, Fred, of all the songs that Billy has done, I know it's – Fans probably love the hits, but is there any one or couple that you can think of that are not necessarily hits, but have the most significance and most meaning to, to Billy? Well, you know, I'll follow my nose into the ones that I really leaned on, uh, I guess, in writing the book. And once I thought, you know, I did a, a kind of pull up my cheat sheet. I did a guide to what RollingStone.com called the Billy Joe's biography compiles an ultimate piano man uh, playlist, and I'll pick a couple from there. I'll tell you one I find autobiographical and interesting. Say goodbye to Hollywood. Of course, it's a Phil Spector song in essence. It's a it's a, a big, beaty echoing wall of sound production and it was from the turnstiles album so circa 1976 uh so there's a line it's it's about really his the guy who was kind of serving as his gopher bodyguard manager what have you a guy named john troy he joins the lovers in his heavy machine down on sunset boulevard and uh the lovers are billy and elizabeth you know john troy is the guy who ultimately couldn't hang on to his job John Troy was a bit of a loose cannon. So I think that was literally say goodbye to Hollywood. I'm done in Los Angeles. I'm going back to New York. And uh, Ronnie Spector did a great job with that song with, coincidentally, Bruce Springsteen's band and Steve Van Zandt having a heavy production hand. Um, you know a song that's, that's really reverberated ever since Billy performed it post-9-11 at the concert for New York, you know, a very emotional night for so many people. Miami 2017, seeing the lights go out on Broadway. And when the lights go down in a big arena and the crowd hears the opening chords to that, there's just this roar of recognition. And, you know, uh, he, he did a great version of it on Songs in the Attic that really did it justice, which is a, a collection of, you know, live songs he thought worked great on stage. But, you know, I watched The Mighty Skyline Fall. When, when he sang that, to um, a crowd of firemen and policemen and people who had lost people at 9-11. It doesn't get too much more emotional than that for New Yorkers, you know. Uh, there's a song I'm very fond of, I've Loved These Days, again from Turnstiles in 1976, A Few More Nights on Satin Sheets. It's really um, about the romance with Elizabeth. Uh, he's sort of lost in, in the end of that romance. I don't know why I even care. We get so high and get nowhere. You know, uh, would have been a great love affair, a tangled, tattered, tough love affair, but one he was sincerely invested in, you know, is ending. So I love these days to me always has a poignancy. Uh, very much like that, again, from Turnstiles, Summer Highland Falls. I alluded to it before. Uh, again, it's a romance ending. Now I've seen that said surrender my lover's eyes. And I can only stand apart and sympathize. Just sad moment, you know, in in a romance and in a life. Uh, Highland Falls, of course, was the place up to Hudson, right 
next door to West Point, a beautiful scenic spot. You look across the lawn and you see the Hudson rolling by down to, you know, your city of, of New York City. And uh, I just thought that was some of his most poetic writing. And, and uh, he has a very smart musicianly explanation of, you know, there's the right hand and the left hand in that song. One of the hands is doing a kind of arpeggiated refrain, and the, the other is playing something that's a little more, oh, the people's chords. It's a little more resonant and evocative. So, again, just a song where music and words met right in the middle in a wonderful way. A uh, couple more, if you indulge me, Ryan. Uh, Moving Out, Anthony's song. That's from 77. Right. So he's been through the romance now. And uh, as we discussed earlier, that's him saying goodbye to the life I grew up in. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to be that middle-class guy who used to hang out at the Parkway Green. I'm not going to be the most popular guy in the, uh, you know, the scenes from an Italian restaurant to move into kind of a, another song from The Stranger. It's seven, seven and a half minutes, you know, my sweet romantic teenage nights. And, um, you know, you look at this couple. We all knew that couple, the king and the queen of the prom. So at the end, then the king and the queen went back to the green, uh, the green where they would all assemble and, you know, drink cheap wine. But you can never go back there again. Uh, again, a significant song, Allentown. By now we're in the the Nylon Curtain album, 1982. Uh, it in some ways, that's one of his best pieces of work. You know, it's kind of sing-songy. Uh, it's kind of despairing. And again, that line, something had, you know, everybody had a pretty good shot to do better than their old man had done. But something happened on the way to that place. They threw an American flag in our face. Again, it's a little bit of bitterness in there, but bitterness on behalf of people he considered his, his fellow middle-class uh, kind of group who had tried to rise up and didn't always succeed as the economy fell apart. Just a couple more. Good Night Saigon, again from the Nylon Curtain, uh, a song he had trouble believing he had the right to to put together. Uh, who am I to talk about Vietnam? I, I didn't have to be drafted. You know, I, he, uh, I forget what it was. Uh, he was kind of the sole support of his mom, things like that. So he didn't go off to Vietnam, but he felt a great empathy, and he grew up with the kind of kids who would go to Vietnam. So, uh, you know, the darkness of that song, They Ruled the Night. I think he perfectly captured the paranoia and dread uh, of being a soldier in that war zone. So that's really a favorite, I think, for him. That's At one stage, Billy and I went through his songbook, and I'd ask him to give letter grades to a few. It's not a, an exercise he had particular appetite for, but... I remember that one was an A plus, and I have to agree with him. <laughs> and maybe one more, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a couple quickies. The longest sure. time, that's a genre song, a doo-wop song, very much about Christie. That's fun. A matter of trust is, you know, from the bridge. That's circa '86, kind of a torch song. Uh, it's really about making a new romance. I won't hold back anything, and I'll walk away a fool or a king. Uh, two more bullets, uh, Lullaby, Good Night, My Angel, perhaps the prettiest melody he ever wrote, perhaps the most heartfelt song. Here, he and Christy are divorcing, Alexa Ray Joel, their, their young, young daughter. You know, when your parents divorce for some kids, it's as if, it's as if someone in the family is dying. And 
also mingled with that almost fear of death, fear of the breakup of the parents, there are all the lines of lullaby, you know. Uh, it's just so touching. Uh, a lot of people, a little tear goes down the cheek of that song. And really, finally, you get to 93, the River of Dreams album, and the River of Dreams single. I, it wasn't a hugely successful sing, single. I've been searching for something taken out of my soul. The river runs to the promised land. But it's hard to believe that in the middle of the night, you know. So uh, that's my sort of carousel of, of <laughs> Billy tunes, I guess. Oh, they were great songs. I'm glad you really pointed them out. There's a another part of the book your book that I really enjoyed is when you're talking about Billy Joel's admiration and relationship with legend Ray Charles and mm-hmm. how they there was really great that they recorded together I'm curious to know from your perspective how Billy impacted Ray and how Ray impacted Billy and as a result of their collaboration together how did their musical trajectories and artistic flair change as a result of them meeting and working together yeah, good question. Again, um, you know, certainly Ray's influence on American popular music is titanic. The songwriting, the, you know, an album that influenced uh, Billy Greatly was Ray Charles' Country. You know, you give your hand to me and then you say goodbye. You know, he could take an old Ray Price, the song that might have nominally been better covered by Willie Nelson, and just invest it with incredible soul. Um Genius After Hours. They're, of the great singers in American history, could, how, could there be anybody better than a tie with Ray Charles? So Billy loved his singing. He loved the rasp. He loved the R&B, the upbeat, more jumping tunes, too. So Ray was a colossal influence. And for him to introduce Billy at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it doesn't get a whole lot better than that if you're Billy. And there's something, Ray, if you ever look at the, uh, I was going to say YouTube, though Billy and Katy Perry and other artists are very mad at YouTube now because YouTube is selling billions in ads off of their backs, you know, off of videos that they uh, don't have the right to license to YouTube. They just, somebody just steals them and puts them up. Anyhow, uh, Ray goes, come on up. I got you, brother. It's just so (laughs) sweet. So, Baby Grand, the song Billy really wrote as a tribute to Ray, is about a baby grand piano. And you know, they shared that musicianship at the piano and, and their investment in that is the is their way of, you know, making the song talk in between the verses. And um, Billy will always tell you that he doesn't he's no great fan of his own piano playing. But uh he's got plenty of chops, you know. But again, it's you know, Ray is the master. So how much influence did did um, did Billy have on Ray? Less, of course, because Ray is already a monument, and he had done the bulk of his great performing. Nothing was ever anything less than great. So then the bulk of his great performing by the time Billy came along to be an influence. But it's a friendship with somebody uh, for which there is a huge mutual respect. I think it was influential. I think it was revivifying for Ray, like. Here's this guy. He's got plenty of hits, and he says, I'm his favorite guy. Well, I like him a lot, too. (laughs) There's a sweetness to it all, sure. If there is one way, how do you feel that Billy Joel will be remembered on his impact, not only in the music, but on the world? Yes. I think uh, he'll be remembered as 
a, a hugely talented songwriter who can deliver. A lot of people have covered his songs in some very good uh, renditions, but he's probably the best interpreter of his own work. The best piano player for a Billy Joel song is Billy Joel. Uh, a guy who found a band that's perfectly suited to his chops, and, and they operate at a very high level. So just one of the most deft and enthralling entertainers around. I hate to sound like such a Pollyanna, but we all know it's true. This guy can nail it for a crowd of 18,000 or 50,000 and make it feel like your living room. So there's that. There's the performance aspect. There's the songs that underlay that, which, again, 33 hits, all, all part of the American songbook that most of us know, that we're going to hear it on the elevator, we're going to hear it in the, the pharmacy, we're going to hear, hear it all over. But usually you're glad to hear it. Uh, so there's that. Uh, there's the guy who's a commentator on social mores. Uh, we didn't start the fire, you know, a guy with a sense of history, a sense of uh, the American moment at various times, uh, who can write a song about the Vietnam War as deftly as he can write a little ditty-bopping love song. So uh, a guy who's hugely responsive to his culture and has had a great interaction with the culture. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great jukebox music, but it's got a depth to it, too. So I think he'll be remembered as... You know, it's a cliche, but it's the soundtrack to our lives. And you don't have to be a baby boomer to say, this was the soundtrack to my life. I, I thought it was interesting. Lindsay Lohan got a tattoo with a couple beer, uh, lines of Billy lyrics on her rib cage or wherever. Um, <laughs> he's had an influence, a huge influence. I couldn't agree with you more. Mr. Fred Shores, I want to thank you so much for being with us today, for giving us your time Again, Fred's book is called Definitive Biography, Billy Joel. I cannot recommend this book enough. If you love Billy Joel or if you want to read a great book, you should definitely go out and buy this. It is, uh, again, one of the one of the best uh, books I've ever read about a musician. Well done. Well done, Fred. Thank you so much for being with us. You're so kind. It's been my pleasure, Ryan. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to Mr. Fred Schroyer's incredible interview. So happy we had you, sir. Special thanks to Mr. Billy Joel, the icon. If you are listening to this right now, it would be an amazing honor to interview you. I have so many questions to ask you. Thank you so much for your you know, wonderful and amazing career. Your music is just, I don't know, there's no way to describe it. It just brought a lot of light and peace to so many people. Also want to give a special thanks as always to our virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Laura Lynn, Miss Lisa Caza, and Miss Constance Sellis. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, please go to our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com. Till the next time we meet, my friends, wishing upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care, and thank you so much for listening. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like, breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you loved the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told makes it easy. Just go to geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift